Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and along with me, my co-host and the creator of this show, Tom Jokic. Christopher, as you readily acknowledge, you and I are both Beatles geeks. You are probably the bigger geek than I am. Maybe. And that is why we kicked off Season 3, Episode 1, with an interview with the Beatles. Now we're going to leap forward just a few years with this great interview with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Now you and I have tried to date stamp this interview. I find it very hard to do because he kind of suggests that he is into kind of a five-year period of looking after a baby. There's something that he says in there that makes it sound like that, but that would put him at 1980, which would put this very close to one of his final interviews. I don't quite believe it's it falls into that spot, but is it about 1975, 76? Because they're not talking about any album, so it's really hard to date stamp this interview. You know, his last album before Double Fantasy was that covers album that he did called Rock and Roll, and that was from about 75, yeah, from 1975. So it's very interesting. It's a little unclear as to when this interview is. Well, we do know that it's post-Imagine. Right, because he talks quite a bit about that song. And he has a fantastic insight into that song. He sure does. We have that coming up and much more. But before we go on, we just need to welcome a new member to the Famous Lost Words family. We're talking about AM800 CKLW in Windsor, who joined the parade last weekend, and it was a thrill to listen to our Stevie Nicks episode on AM800. I did that on the iHeartRadio app. So welcome aboard. Uh, You're joining News Talk 1010 in Toronto, CJAD in Montreal, and CFRA in Ottawa, plus all of our listeners to the podcast version of the show on the iHeartRadio app. Download it now to get caught up with past episodes. Now, as far as this episode goes, we have the aforementioned John Lennon interview, plus a really great interview with Joe Walsh. This is from 1978 when he was both with the Eagles and also a very successful solo artist with songs like Life's Been Good. We also have a very weird couple of clips from Phil Spector, famed producer known for his wall of sound, but also serving time in prison these days. These clips are both from the late 60s or early 70s. And we have some really cool audio from John Kay of Steppenwolf, a band that invented the phrase heavy metal. And he talks about their experience over the years. And finally, I have some cool song facts. This week, it's the original names for very famous bands, and some of these names are quite frankly awful. Let's get started now with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Imagine all the people Classic John Lennon, 1971, and Imagine. Tom, post-Beatles, and after his lost weekend, John Lennon had settled into domestic life with Yoko and their son Sean in New York City. This interview reveals an at times introspective, at times upbeat, but always communicative John, talking freely about a variety of subjects. He sounds happy and relaxed, Mm -hmm. and with a newfound perspective on things. So, does he almost take back the invective of How Do You Sleep, his at times vicious message to former collaborator and friend Paul McCartney. Hmm. Lyrics like, The sound you make is Muzak to my ears, and The only thing you done was yesterday, don't fade away too quickly. Yeah, ouch. But Lennon seems ready to let the animosity that fueled those lyrics go. I used my resentment against Paul that I have as a kind of sibling rivalry resentment from youth 
to create a song. I mean, rivalry between two guys, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it was always there, but it was a, a creative rivalry. Yes. Like there was a rivalry between the Beatles and the Stones. It was a creative rivalry in that respect. It's not a, a terrible, vicious, horrible vendetta because it's not on that level. Very interesting. He goes on to say how he uses those feelings creatively. One tends to, when interviewed by a print press, you see, now you can hear the tone of my voice, you see. So I can say, I felt resentment. You can see the uh-huh. face and you know what I'm saying is, I felt resentment, so I used that situation the same as I used with drawing from heroin to write cold turkey. Mm. I w- used my resentment and withdrawing from Paul and the Beatles and the relationship with Paul to write How Do You Sleep. I don't really f- go around with those thoughts in my head all the mm-hmm. time. I wanted to make a funky track and this is a good way to make it. So Dick's was He talked about how he felt after the Beatles decided to stop touring. After the Beatles' last tour, which was 65, I think, was the, the one where the Ku Klux Klan were burning Beatle records and I was, you know, held, held up as a Satanist or something. Then we decided no more touring, that's enough of that. I'm not going to put up with it. And I was dead nervous, so I, I said yes to Dick Lester that I would make this movie with him. I went to Almeria, Spain for six weeks just to, because I didn't know what to do. You know, how, what do you do when you don't tour? There's no life. It wasn't that I wanted to tour so much, but I didn't know what to do. What, what the hell do you do all day, you know? I mean, <laughs> so I, went, I did the movie, which is boring as hell, and six weeks there. But I was really too scared to walk away. I was thinking, well, this is like the end, really. You know, there's no more touring. That means there's going to be a blank space in the future at some time or other. That's when I really started considering the life without the Beatles. What would it be? And I spent that six weeks thinking about that. I didn't consider forming my own group or anything because it didn't even enter my mind. Just what would I do when it stopped? Okay, so let's think about what he just said there. Him saying the Beatles were bigger than Jesus in 1965 directly led to the Beatles stopping touring which directly led him to thinking about life after the Beatles. That may have been the door opener there. I'm making very big leaps and bounds, but I don't think those leaps and bounds are unreasonable. Yeah, I mean, everybody looks back at their own history and reorders things to sort of create different meaning, I think. Yeah. I think they were just done with touring by the time that they hit... uh, the Cow Palace in San Francisco and right. they just hung it up for good. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you hear the stories they tell, I mean, the Beatles was a prison of their own design to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was not, not an easy lifestyle. And I think also they wanted to, to spend a lot more time making records. They wanted to spend time in the studio. And I think it turned out well for all concerned. For sure. You know, it would have been interesting, though, had the Beatles been allowed to tour in a more modern setting. So, with better sound systems so they could hear themselves, maybe those, imagine them with their in-ear monitors being able to hear what they were playing. Because in many Mm. cases, they just couldn't. There was too much screaming. And imagine them being able to kind of breathe a little bit on stage instead of ripping through, you know, 12 of their songs in 36 minutes. And imagine them being, sorry, I'm using a John Lennon song to talk about the Beatles, but do imagine what they could have been like live had they been given a chance to kind of breathe a little bit and experiment a little bit and to create some of those songs in a live setting. I think it would have been really fascinating. Well, the closest we're going to get, I think, to knowing what that would be 
um, is to go to a Paul McCartney solo show. For and sure. And you see him performing things like Fool on the Hill and Penny Lane, um, you get a sense of, oh, okay, so with full-on modern production values and everything else, this is what it might have been. Yes. Um, not to say that they sound like the Beatles, but they do, if you know what I mean. Right, exactly. The song Imagine is from Lennon's most successful album and I think is his best-loved song at least certainly from his solo recordings. Here, he reveals the mystery co-writer on the song. Well, actually, uh, that should be credited as a Lennon-Ono song, mm-hmm. because a lot of mm-hmm. it, the lyric and the concept came from Yoko, but those days I was a bit more selfish, a bit more macho, and I sort of omitted to mention her contribution, yeah, but it was right out of Grapefruit, her book. There's a whole pile of pieces about imagine this and imagine that, and... Uh, I have give a credit now, long overdue. Wow, there you go. You know, John Lennon was perhaps no saint, but he certainly spoke the language of feminism long before many other guys did. Yeah. I had heard that notion expressed before, but I'd never heard him say it. So yes. That was, that was uh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Imagine was number one in Canada, number three on Billboard, but it wasn't even released as a single in the UK. Why, you may ask? Well, I, can't, I must say I'm blank on why that would have happened. It must have been either because Klein and EMI or whoever was... Decided that maybe decided it's a bit too that, political. That too political or were in, uh, it'll sell the album better and or whatever reasoning they had for him because it was a single in America, I believe. Yes. I think it was something to do with they wanted to sell the album, so make them buy the album to get him out. Some garbage like that. It surprised me. John and Yoko launched a number of initiatives to support their peace campaign, including the recording of Give Peace a Chance during their bed-in for peace in Montreal. Less memorably, there was the planting of acorns for peace <laughs> and the appearance in a bag in Austria. What? <laughs> what we did was we went to the famous uh, hotel in Vienna to put it on the TV there. It caused a riot. It was the biggest reaction the Austrian TV had ever had. I mean, there was complaints. There's no sex in it. It was just a constant... You think something's going to happen all the time, but nothing ever really happens. Just the pressure on the girl as she's cracking up under the strain of these strange people following around. Yeah. And uh, But the Austrians never saw us. We were, <laughs> what's that hotel? I've the Chocolate Cake Hotel. Yeah. It used to be the Habsburg's Castle or whatever. And we're in there, but we, they never saw us, the Austrian press. We did everything in a bag. So we came down to the press conference in a bag, in the elevator. <laughs> and the front page of the Austrian papers was all these people holding mics to a bag, you know. And all they said was, but John, is that really you? I said, yeah, it's me. But how do we know? I said, because I'm telling you. They said, well, will you sing a song? You know, I sang Maggie Mae and she sang uh, some, some Japanese song. folk song or something to them in a bag. And a guy said... I've, but I've waited years to see why did you have to pick Austria to go in a bag? Oh my God, that's so funny. Even John yeah. sees the ridiculousness of going around in a large bag, but you could tell he loved doing it anyway. <laughs> you know, it was pure avant-garde performance art. And what does our friend George Harrison <laughs> called avant-garde? Avant-garde a clue. <laughs> <laughs> Well, go, of course, that that whole thing was echoed, you know, at the uh, rock and roll revival in uh, 1969 when Yoko did perform in a bag on mm. stage. Wow! Yes, mm. you've told me about that. It was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so we still have a couple more John Lennon clips, Christopher. John talks about writing "Happy Christmas, War Is Over." 
We almost missed the Christmas market that year with that record. I think we we almost we got it out earlier in Britain than we did in America. Something held us up. I can't remember. There's so many things going on. But what we wanted to do was have something besides White Christmas being played every Christmas, you know. <laughs> and uh, there's always a war, right? Yeah. There's always somebody getting shot. So every year you can play it, and there's always somebody being tortured or shot somewhere. So it, it, the the lyric stands in that respect. He knew it would always get played, not only because Christmas comes every year, but because there's always a war. Talk about like a sad, cynical, but very sadly good observation. And speaking of sadly, in a sad, ironic comment, John talks about the freedom of living in New York City. That's what that's what made me finally stay here. It wasn't a conscious decision. I just found that oh, I was going to movies, going to restaurants, and. I have the five years you think, you know, it was just baking bread and the baby. No, because I, I went to Hong Kong and walked around and people could not appreciate what it was. To, when I left England, I still couldn't go on the streets. It was still Carnaby Street and all that stuff was going on. We couldn't walk around the block, couldn't go to a restaurant unless you wanted to go with the business of the star going to the restaurant garbage. I've just been walking the streets for the last seven years. When we first moved here, we actually lived in the village, in Greenwich Village. She says, don't, you will be able to walk here, but I would be walking around tents like that, waiting for somebody to say something or jump on me and like that. And it took me two years to unwind, just to, I can go right out this door now and go in a restaurant. Do you want to know how great that is? Mm. Or go to the movies? I mean, people come up and ask for autograph or say hi, but they won't bug you. Wow. We played a similar clip like that last year when we played a John Lennon interview, and... The irony and the sadness of it never fails to strike me as being as tragic as it is. Very interesting stuff. There's John Lennon from the 1970s with Yoko Ono on Famous Lost Words. I'm just looking for clues at the scene of the crime. Life's been good to me so far. Great song, Life's Been Good, Joe Walsh. And that song mm-hmm. was recorded while he was still a member of the Eagles. That was one of his solo albums from that time. And that's where this interview comes from. Christopher, go ahead. Love that song. Joseph Fiddler, a.k.a. Joe Walsh, is a beloved and respected musician who's had a long string of success dating back to his teen years as a member of the James Gang, followed by a group called Barnstorm, and then, of course, ta-da, the Eagles. Mm-hmm. Well, when he joined that band, they were on the verge of their greatest success with Hotel California. Now, fans of the band were surprised at the news, but Joe explains it well. I think there was a, a little bit of frustration in that group and that they, they wanted to rock a little more. They wanted to get away from the, from the softer stuff, uh-huh. you know, having done that for two or three albums. And uh, uh, I kind of wanted to get into a group. I was really kind of frustrated uh, with the non-musical things that go along with, uh, you know, being a solo act. Uh, I had to be the boss, I had to do the hiring and firing and make all the decisions and be on top of all this stuff. And all those things are non-musical and they really distract from one's, you know, trying to create. And we had been friends for quite a while. A lot of people thought that was nuts and that would never work. You know, I think a lot of artists who go out on their own find the pressure of being the sole focal point 
a bit too much. And I know that was the case for Joe Walsh. He, like many others, just want to be part of a band and not always the guy upon who the spotlight shines. So I think that's definitely the case in Joe Walsh's case. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there are some artists like, say, Sting, <laughs> who's just born for the spotlight, mm-hmm. right? Just yep. bring it on, shine it on me, and, you know, here we go. But Joe, you know, he's one of the guys, and you can tell that he just loves I love how kind of... I don't know, not confessional, but really open he was about the fact that, oh, you know, being a solo artist is kind of a lot of work. <laughs> yes. Like, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. He talked about what a natural fit it was with the band. The card up our sleeve that we had was, uh, at the time, we had the same manager, and we still do, mm-hmm. the same management, and we had known each other for quite a while. I had come out on the road and, come out on the road and just showed up at a couple of Eagle concerts and jammed with them. You know, just to hang out. We knew each other for a good year before I joined the group. And we had jammed and we had run around together. And so we, you know, we were used to it. We were pretty sure it would work because we had all played and uh, known each other. Yeah. So it, it wasn't that much of a shock to us. But I guess it really did freak some people out. And I guess we showed him. So I saw the Eagles about five months ago, and Joe Walsh was definitely the ace they had up their sleeve. For the first hour Mm. of the show, there he is, just playing the guitar, sharing his leads with Stuart Smith, doing a great job. And then he steps up for his time in the spotlight, and he's funny. He's actually hilarious. He's so lovable, and he's right on the money as he does Rocky Mountain Way and Life's Been Good and a couple of other songs. And it was such a nice counterpoint to the softer songs, you know, with um, Deacon Fry filling in for his dad and also Vince Gill Mm. filling in for Glenn Fry as well. It It took two people, and they did a great job. And also the seriousness of Don Henley. Henley's fantastic, and Henley can have a good time, but he'd prefer not to show it too much. And so and so Joe Walsh was really like almost the comic relief of this concert. And it was such a welcome moment at a time when the concert kind of needed it the most. Honestly, I walked out of there with a newfound respect for Joe Walsh as part of the Eagles. And he can play. For sure. He has some very interesting insights into the Eagles' writing process. Well, the Eagles is a process. You know, we all bring in ideas. Um, it's kind of dangerous to bring in a completely finished song into the Eagles. The way that it gets written is everybody brings in a whole bunch of ideas, and we throw them around at each other. And uh, between five guys, it kind of takes shape. And then, you know, Henley and Fry the, are the great word men of the band. Yeah. And once we get the song, once we get the song fairly well organized, then they kind of run off and start working on the words. And then they bring them in, and maybe we'll suggest a line or or uh, try and, uh, you know, help them out. Oh, I love that. The behind-the-scenes working I know. of an incredibly successful band. And the only way to maybe get a closer view into that is to watch the History of the Eagles, that documentary that mm-hmm. you and I have spoken about a few times. Because <laughs> yeah. they even show them as, you know, putting together the Hotel California album when Joe's relatively new to the band. Great stuff. Well, I love how he calls them Henley and Fry, the word guys. It sounds like a business card, doesn't it? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> or a detective agency. Yeah. Um, he talked about Randy Meisner's departure from the band. Randy had been in the band, you know, for since the very beginning. Right. 
Uh, and uh, he has uh, three kids. He's been married seven years. He has a domestic life that he's trying to to uh, keep together. And uh, uh, it was really kind of a clash of lifestyles, you know. He really, well, well last year was real busy. We worked a whole lot. And when Hotel California came out, he just really got distant from his kids and from his wife and all. And it really bothered him, and he'd been playing, you know, for about four years, and he really just wanted to uh, uh, not have it be that crazy, you know? It, yeah. And when Hotel California came out, we really had no idea it was going to take off like that. And the whole thing just kind of escalated to a little uh, a little more cuckoo level than Randy uh, could handle, and he chose to uh, be with his kids. And we all love them, you know, and, uh, so, you know, sometimes I feel that way, too. But uh, the Eagles just demand so, so much time yeah. to stay on top of it and all. Yeah, and he really does love his family, and he always has, you know. He's been married, you know, seven years, and it's it just got just got a little bit too much for him, and he decided to uh, back off a little bit. And it, it was, uh, you know, we all love him. It was talked out. And uh, there was really no no resentment or anything. We, we still talk to him all the time. You know, when we got the, the Grammy Awards, Randy came to the, uh, to the, well, we didn't make it on the TV, but he came to the, uh, to the dinner afterward. And he was there, and Timmy was there too, and we all got along great. I don't know if you felt the same way as I did, Christopher, but the most shocking part of that classic Eagles documentary was what Randy Meisner looked like and how maybe defeated he looked during that documentary just by life itself. That was really kind of shocking to me. Well, maybe Joe is being understated when he talks about a clash of lifestyles. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Joe loves working solo, but he has no plans to leave the Eagles as he makes abundantly clear. One thing I do want to maybe kind of stress is that uh, the fact that I did a solo album really does not uh, infer that I'm pursuing a solo career, you know. I'm still in the Eagles, and I want people to know that, and I want to continue to be in the Eagles. And we can go out and play, uh, you know, stuff off my album, as good as any band I put together. And uh, I'm really happy to be in the Eagles. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you know, I'm going to leave the Eagles or anything. Yeah. I'm just really grateful uh, and thankful to be in a position where when I get, a, you know, an album's worth of tunes, I can go in and, and put an album out and, and be in the Eagles, too. And here he talks about the song, Life's Been Good. I'll tell you, I had no idea. I didn't even, uh, I didn't even want to put it out. I thought something like uh, Tomorrow or, or Over and Over would be better. Tell us a little bit about Life's Been Good, okay? The little story behind, uh, behind the writing of the song. Well, uh, I, I kind of had that, you know, the opening lick I had been playing around with for a long time. I wanted to write a song about the, uh, like I said before, the non-musical things, you know, like the material things that we kind of uh, are up against a lot. Yeah. And I wanted to write it... Uh, uh, a little funny. I wanted to I wanted it to be kind of humorous because it, it it is kind of you know. Sometimes when I'm, you know, when we've got a police escort and I'm in a limousine and we're going to a concert, I just it really it's ridiculous sometimes. And I wanted to to uh, relate some examples about the 
crazy lifestyle we go through, and I want it to be funny, but I didn't want to come across as being a jerk or being a, you know, egoed out or anything. <laughs> and I was really kind of, of shy about uh, even even doing that song. But enough, I bounced it off some friends, and uh, enough people said, hey, man, I th you know, they think that's funny. People thought it was funny. I was afraid I'd just come across as a jerk and... After you heard the song two or three times, it wouldn't be funny anymore. So it's a, it's as big a surprise to me as it is to you that that surfaced as the single of the album. I have a mansion, forget the price. Ain't never been there, they tell me it's nice. You know, I swear, I've probably heard that song, I don't know, 500 times, and <laughs> it never gets old to me. It's always funny. By the way, if you want to hear... Just a slight twist on that song, Get the Eagles Live, which came out in 1980, and by the way, many critics called it an alleged live album because of all the overdubbing on that album. <laughs> um, but he does a really funny version of Life's Been Good that incorporates all the names of the guys in the Eagles at the time. It's fantastic. It's very funny. Oh, I've never heard that. Yeah. So there you go, Joe Walsh from about 1978 on Famous Lost Words. Now, Joe's interview with Mark Marin from last year is a must-listen if you're a fan. Joe's speech has slowed down a bit, but he's been sober for 25 years, and he, you know he is a little slurry, so you do wonder if he is, but he is, in fact, sober. He also talks about the death of his three-year-old daughter who passed away in a car crash more than 40 years ago and the terrible impact that had on him, and that came as a surprise to me when I heard that on the podcast. Mark Marin's podcast is my favorite favorite of all time. It's called WTF and is quite simply the best interview podcast there is. And we are a close second, Christopher. <laughs> We're fighting the good fight here, Tom. <laughs> What's next? Tom, Heavy Metal Thunder. That's right. That was That's what I was talking about. So mm -hmm. that's in Born to be Wild. Yep. Written by Mars Bonfire. Seriously, Born to be Wild and Magic Carpet Ride still sound good to this day. Oh, yeah. They're well-recorded, and they're so inventive, especially Magic Carpet Ride, just that beat and everything they were doing with the with the keyboards and with the guitar especially. Those are great songs. And, of course, John Kay, his vocals are got, got that classic heavy rock snarl to them. Just powerful stuff. I love it. Joaquim Fritz Corledot. Huh? He changed his name to John Kay. Oh, okay. <laughs> and in 1967, together with fellow Canadians Goldie McJohn and Jerry Edmonton, uh, they joined American musicians Rushton Morev and Michael Monarch to form Steppenwolf. Wow. From the ashes of a Toronto band known as the Sparrows. Now, Steppenwolf are still touring and going strong under Kay's leadership. And in March of 2018, they released a three-CD retrospect of Steppenwolf at 50. This interview is from the late 70s, and John Kay talks about how the band got together and their early hits, including the classic Born to be Wild. Jerry Edmonton, the original drummer, uh, and Golden McJohn on keyboards, as well as myself and two new fellows, out of the ashes of the Sparrow, formed Steppenwolf in late summer 67 in Los Angeles. And that's where it started to take off. By 68, we had our first album out, and then, of course, in the summer, Born to be Wild came out, and that was followed by Magic Carpet Ride, and then a year upon that, Easy Rider revitalized Born to be Wild in a whole new, different context and, and made it worldwide. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it just kind of snowballed from there. 
and um, it went extremely well until 71 when I decided to call it quits for various reasons, the majority of which were musical and uh, to a lesser degree because of, um, you know, some some friction uh, developing uh, inevitably, as it will. When, yeah. John Kay said on the band's website recently, rock and roll can kill you while still young or keep you young as the years go by. <laughs> That's a nice quote, isn't that's it? That's good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. There's a lot of uh, a lot of meaning in that. Now, in this interview, John Kay talks about a gig in Greece that sounds like it would rival the Nika riots in Constantinople in 532 okay. AD. Okay, did you have to look that up? Because let's hope you did. The Nika riots in Constantinople in 532 AD. Come on, Christopher. <laughs> All right. I think there's maybe a little rock and roll hyperbole going on here. So are you a history geek as well as a rock and roll geek? <laughs> Not really. Oh, okay, okay. All right, let's listen to this. I was just in Greece. <laughs> oh, were you? Oh, we had, a, we had enormous riots and put 20 cops in the hospital. It was unbelievable. With Steppenwolf? Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, there were 7,000 people inside, and another 7,000 or so wanted to get in. And they literally destroyed the entire exterior of the building, which was all glass. From the ground to the ceiling, to the roof, it was all glass. 20,000 bucks worth of plate glass was demolished in 20 minutes. And then they had holes in the place and could come in. And they came in. And it came in to the point where the stage was shaking and the light trees were moving. Uh. And we had 15 people in front of us on the stage doing nothing but throwing bodies off the stage. I mean, it was insane. I hadn't seen anything like that in the States, even when we were at a very peak of popularity 10 years ago. Kay talks about what would be every band's nightmare, someone stealing your name and taking it on the road. Jerry Edmonton and I, who jointly owned Steppenwolf Incorporated and Productions, got word that there was a band out there calling itself Steppenwolf. I said, well, that's interesting. Mm. We weren't aware of the fact that we were out there anyplace. And no sooner had we gotten word of that and started a lawsuit against them, than another one popped up. And by the time we were done, there had been four. Well, we started suing and this and that. We found to our chagrin that the um, American judicial system is very slow when it moves at all. And I reached a point where I had to make several decisions. One, what am I going to call this thing? Is it the John K. band, John K. and the X, Y, and Z band, whatever? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what do I do with the band? Do I sit in L.A. and write songs and do demos and wait for a label deal? Do I take them on the road and get them tight and professional and polished? And I decided to kill several birds with one stone and do the latter, to go out on the road. And I called it John K. and Steppenwolf. And the reason for that is quite obvious. One, it set us apart from the bogus bands, which we were trying to drive out of business. Right. And number two, it reflected the reality of how this thing was structured, which is it's John Kay's baby and his friends giving him musical support the way it's with Neil Young and Crazy Horse or Bob Seger and the Silver, Silver Bullet Band. And uh, we've slowly worked, you know, we obviously had to repair a very damaged name. Oh, wow. Mm. Are you listening? Credence Clearwater Revisited? All right. Yeah. Or... <laughs> And that's good. That was a good choice. John Kay and Steppenwolf, you know, using his name and reclaiming the name of Steppenwolf. Good call. Christopher. <laughs> yes, yes, Tom. <laughs> See, I know where this is going. It's, it's not pretty. Buckle up, folks. I know. You know what? If you have kids, get them in the basement just for their own safety, <laughs> for what they're about to hear is just odd. And we're talking about Phil Spector here. Yeah. And I found these clips, and I actually only chose two or three because the as a unit, like as a there's collection. More? Oh, Christopher, there's a lot more. We got to give a little background here because 
although Phil Spector is one of those names that gets tossed around and is always associated with the concept of the wall of sound, a particular right. way of recording using all sorts of musicians, like you know, three and four drummers at a time, that kind of thing. Sure. A lot of his contributions to popular music have been kind of lost in some of the sordidness of his story, because it's a sad final act for him, for sure. sure. But he was long regarded as one of the most influential names in the history of pop. His credits as a songwriter, and most memorably as a producer, go from the early 60s, the recordings with the Ronettes, the Crystals, and Ike and Tina, right up to the Beatles' production of Let It Be, right. and Long and Winding Road, right. which Paul McCartney sought to undo subsequently with sure. Let It Be Naked. Right. Anyway, he went on to work with John Lennon and George Harrison on solo records, including all Things Must Pass. Uh, he worked with Leonard Cohen, the Ramones. Mm-hmm. I mean, a really wide collection of Cel- people. Celine Dion? Celine. That's right. Never came up. Uh, some of his best-known songs include You've Lost That Love and Feeling, He's a Rebel, and To Do Run Run. Oh, and what about Be My Baby, one of those oh, early 60s songs yeah. that is considered one of the greatest songs of all time. His megalomaniacal ways. Nice. <laughs> do you like that word? <laughs> I did. In the studio are well-documented. And uh, the murder conviction in 2009 will likely see him end his time in jail in California. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if you saw the Al Pacino uh, portrayal of him. I think it was an HBO movie called Spectre, I think. But uh, but Al Pacino played him, and it's uh, it seemed like it was disturbingly accurate because he was a very strange fellow. The two short clips that we have are bizarre, to say the least, and give a tiny glimpse into the legend Phil Spector. I still say, and I've said it before, I invented the word producer, and I'm changing it now to produce and direct it. Because that's really what I am. I don't only put up the money, I direct it. I'm the same thing Stanley Kubrick is to movies, or Alfred Hitchcock is to movies. I produce and direct. There is no one in the world who can make records better than I can. There's nobody who ever will. Oh, man, you know, he was a talented producer. Mm -hmm. He created some really memorable sounds and songs. Uh, But boy, oh, boy, there never will be anyone else like me. Okay. And he's comparing (laughs) himself to Hitchcock and Stanley Kubrick. Well, all right. It gets worse. Never, Never lacking for confidence. Right. This next clip is 10 seconds long, and at least six of the seconds are silence. And it is... Still hard to listen to. Go go ahead. Yeah, Set and, this and, one and it, it it gets very sort of uh, low level towards the end. So yes. you got to lean in a bit. Yes. Okay. Anyway, Phil takes his time to respond to this next question, and uh, you'll need to listen hard to hear what he has to say. What's been your prime motivation throughout your life? To prove that I was right and everyone else was wrong. Oh. I just got goosebumps in a very, very bad way. Bad chills? Yes. Mm-hmm. That I was right and everyone else was wrong. That's what he, that's what well, he wants his Well, you know what? Legacy. I mean, let's just be open about this. A lot of times that's how people feel, mm-hmm. but they know better than to say it in public. That's right. But he's clearly just giving voice to what he absolutely believes. Mm-hmm. And I will go on to say that the other clips, it's really him unloading the contents of his very confused mind. You know, I wanted to play some of those for you, but thankfully, I didn't play you all of those. There you go. Phil Spector, Famous Lost Words. You're listening to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and Tom has some cool song facts for us. Okay, Christopher. Now, this is all on one theme, and it's 
the worst original band names ever. So there's famous bands. I'm going to tell you their original name and why they, thank God, decided to change them. Blue Oyster Cult, known, of course, for this song. Come on, baby, That's Don't Fear the Reaper, 1978, I think. Okay, so Blue Oyster Cult may not be a great name for a band, but it was memorable. Their original name was Soft White Underbelly. Ooh, yuck. <laughs> I knew you were going to say, ooh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's, that is an ooh. This one is just corny. Earth, Wind, and Fire, right? That's, that's a great name. It's very powerful. It's very evocative. They were originally great known name. in the 60s as the Salty Peppers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, thank, dodged a bullet there. Thank God Maurice White came to his senses. That's for sure. The Doobie mm-hmm. Brothers were originally known as PUD. P-U-D, PUD. Isn't that awful? <laughs> the Doobie Brothers is a bit of a dopey name. Oh, I didn't even yeah, mean no, that. Yeah, that, that too is, <laughs> is heinous. But Yeah, that's unforgivable. But PUD is even worse. Uh, the band Sugar Ray who had about three hits in the 90s, including Every Morning and Fly and Someday. They were originally called the Shrinky Dinks. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, folks. Some bands don't get around to changing their name. They keep the really bad name. Like right. there's a band from England called the Test Icicles. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. It did Just make say me that laugh. really fast about five yes. times, would you? It did make me laugh. So there you go. Um, Red Hot Chili Peppers were originally known as... Tony Flo and the Miraculously Majestic Masters of Mayhem. <laughs> oh, man. Where <laughs> does he get this stuff, friends? <laughs> and we got two more to go. Okay. Black Sabbath was originally known as the Polka Talk Blues Band. I don't even understand what that means, but it was a terrible name. And Geezer Butler eventually saved the day when he saw a crowd of people lined up to see the Boris Karloff film called Black Sabbath and convinced his bandmates to try it out. Good call, Geezer. Okay, and another good call is when Creed changed their name from their original name, which was Naked Toddler. Isn't that awful? (laughs) Yikes. There you go. Cool Song Facts. You can follow me on Twitter at Cool Song Facts. Okay, I just want to bring up the fact that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony is coming up this Friday. So let's run down who's going to be inducting who. Harry Styles, of all people, will be inducting Stevie Nicks. Stevie Nicks will be getting in as a solo artist, and she'll be the first woman to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. As a solo artist, and of course, as a member of Fleetwood Mac. David Byrne from Talking Heads, one of my favorite bands, will induct Radiohead, one of my brother's favorite bands, not that you care about that. Um, Trent, <laughs> Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails will induct The Cure, one of my favorites from the 80s. I love that band, The Cure. Brian May from Queen will induct Def Leppard. Def Leppard, good band. Do they really deserve to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I'm not so sure about that, but we'll let this one go. Janelle Monae will induct Janet Jackson. 
Now, Janelle Monet is really one of the hottest performers in the soul, kind of neo-soul funk category these days. She does not get enough attention on the radio, but if you want to hear a really great modern soul album, listen to her album called Dirty Computer from last year, and she will remind you of Janet Jackson and of Prince. But she's got her own spin on things, an exceptionally talented artist, Janelle Monet. Okay. Susanna Hoffs from the Bangles will induct the Zombies. Oh my God, the Zombies. It's been over 50 years since they broke out with songs like Time of the Season, She's Not There, um, and all those songs. And they are finally getting their chance to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Susanna Hoffs from the Bangles, one of Christopher's good friends, will induct them. And finally, Simon Laban and John Taylor from Duran Duran will induct Roxy Music. That is well-earned. Boy, that was a band that had a lot of influence on a lot of bands, including people like David Bowie and Duran Duran and a lot of those kind of really stylish new wave, new romantic artists from the late 70s, early 80s. So Roxy Music, Brian Ferry, certainly a deserving spot in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this Friday night. That does it for this week's episode of Famous Lost Words. Thanks to our technical producer, Adam Karsh, and our executive producer, Rob Farina. Also thanks to the gang at Orbit Media, including Rob Basile and Heather Edwards, for their help in getting our show to as many ears as possible. You can help, too, simply by listening to past episodes on the iHeartRadio app. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Talk to you next week with another edition of Famous Lost Words.